All right. So yeah, we're beginning the book of Luke and I'll tell you, it was, it was funny when I was praying about what to teach coming out here, you know, cause you guys know the story for those of you online that maybe don't know the story uh, for a year and a half. Now the Lord has been stirring this thing in my heart and it was like, all right, Lord, like, what are we to do? <laughs> what are we to do about this? And I'm talking to people in the room that I know have done the same thing. I think we've all lived in California at some point and now we're here in Texas. So uh, this is funny, actually, this is the group, man. And so um, you're seeking the Lord and all these things like, okay, Lord, the one thing that's not going to change wherever I'm at is we teach the word of God. And it was like, okay, what, what do we begin with? We begin with the gospel. And so then it was like, okay, Lord, I have four options. Right. And so, as I considered the different gospels, I love the book of Luke because there's two big themes in the gospel of Luke, prayer and the gospel. Those words are used more in Luke than any of the other synoptic gospels. He focuses on Jesus, the man, God incarnate, right? God, man. This is what Luke focuses on. And to me, I know Matthew talks about Jesus being the Messiah. Mark talks about Jesus being the perfect servant. John talks about being God, the son. But there's something so cool and practical about Luke also because it's a Gentile writing it. And to me, I don't know if there's any Jewish people in this room, <laughs> but most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles born on this side of the cross. And for Luke, he lived in the time of Jesus, but he wasn't an eyewitness to the things. And I thought that's just like us, right? Like this is my life. I've taken the word of God as truth and applied it to my life and watched how it's worked out to be true. I wasn't there for it, right? I feel old, but I'm not that old, right? Um, you'd have to be very old to be an eyewitness. Well, Luke, he was a Gentile. He was a physician. So it's kind of cool. He uses like terms when he's explaining miracles. I think it's Luke 9 where the man's leg is healed. And in the original Greek, he's using like components of the body. He's describing it. Like I couldn't do it because I'm not a doctor, but he describes it like, oh yeah, this bone, you know, the leg bone connects to the knee bone, right? So it's that kind of, but he uses the real terms. And he connects the whole thing and says, that's what the Lord did. The Lord fixed these things medically. And so there's something so practical. And so like Luke is just honestly, he's living his life, but he's living his life for the Lord. And I think it's cool because that's really what the introduction of this message is. In Luke chapter one, in the first four verses, he's going to explain why he's writing. And I think to all of us, it's the same reason that we should be proclaiming the gospel. So if you're at Luke one, say I'm there. All right. Awesome. Look at the first four verses. It says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And see, right from the get-go, Luke says, hey, you might wonder who I am and why I'm writing this. <laughs> he goes, I'm not a disciple. Anyone asking, like, why is some Gentile writing this? This is weird, right? He says, listen, I have a what he calls a perfect understanding. And now he's not being, like, boastful and saying that he knows everything. But what this all entails is when he's using terms like, narrative in the greek it has to do with being fully persuaded fully known fully proven that this is truth and you say well how do you get to that how do you decide that it is false truth he took all of these people that were eyewitnesses and we know it because he's going to give us details in this chapter about the the conception right of jesus christ the idea of mary conceiving with christ and how that played out how do you get those details unless you go talk to mary how do you find out what Zechariah saw in the temple and how it all came? Yes, it could be handed by one person to another. And I believe he took all of the accounts of all these different people and said, we're going to build a chronological flow of the life of Jesus. And it's so cool because the Lord takes these God-given gifts that Luke had, a mind to think, a mind to study, intelligence. The guy's a physician. He's really highly educated. Um, this is funny. I, I couldn't help Matt, but I was thinking about Matt during this study because I feel like Matt's just, he's my brother-in-law. He's a very smart guy and he takes like things and uses his God-given brain to take them and then say, well, how does this, how does the gospel meet practicality? I feel like Luke is a guy that is just a smart physician and says, man, I want to take this to my people, to the Gentiles. I want to take this out to people like Theophilus. This guy has a real name. 
Uh, we don't know exactly who Theophilus is, but there's a couple theories on it. Uh, the one I like the most, and again, it's not like canon or anything, but it's kind of what we can guess at. I believe that Theophilus, given that title most excellent, is an unbeliever maybe on the fence about Christianity because we know that titles in the church, like we're brothers and sisters now, right? I don't walk around the most excellent Rex, the most excellent Matt. We don't do things like that. We're like, bro, what's up? Like there's this casualness. And also that title of most excellent was a Roman title. And so it usually had to do with Roman, like, like rulers or government. And so what the, some schools of thought say is like, well, Luke being an educated dude, he rolled with Paul all the time. And we know he writes Luke and he writes Acts. And it's a catalog of all the things that Paul has done, what Jesus has done. The belief is that this may be the document that Luke was assembling to show that Paul and Christ are not a threat to Rome. Look at these guys are doing good things. Jesus was the perfect man. Paul, he's, he's good, man. He's going places and God's on his side. He's getting through shipwreck. He's getting through venomous snake bites. Like don't mess with Paul. Jesus on his side. Jesus is not a threat to Rome. Let's just let us be right. Cause it never gets to the point where Paul gets before Caesar in the book of Acts, right? That's kind of an important note. You think if the goal was to show you what happened with Paul, you'd have that detail. It's almost like this was all briefed and handed before that trial before Caesar. That's one school of thought. I like that school of thought. Here's the other cool thing. The name Theophilus means lover of God. And I go, that's what we're here for today. So the spiritualization of these things, even though this is a re very real man he's writing to, I think as we study this, we're going to be blessed. We're going to grow in our knowledge of the Lord. And it's going to allow us to love the Lord more because when you know someone, when you get to know them better, you love them. Like it's, it's Valentine's Day, right? Uh, that was cool. I didn't plan for that. But we're starting the book that really is the greatest love story ever, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think about my wife, like I had to go out and meet and be with my wife. I mean, I fell in love very quickly with my wife, but I had to go out and like, you know, you go on dates and you get to know each other. And when you get to know each other, you fall more in love. That's what happens when you study this narrative that is the gospel of Luke. You're going to fall in love with the Lord. And so the one other note I want to give you on this intro that's interesting here, when he's talking about compiling all these things from eyewitnesses and ministers, those words are awesome in the Greek. The eyewitness, it's actually close to the word that would be used for like a medical autopsy. So there's preciseness involved with this. Luke is a physician goes, Hey man, I'm treating this thing. Like I'm on the, I'm on the clock getting paid for it. <laughs> I'm going to do a good job. My reputation's on the line. And that idea of ministers, that one comes from the word for the people that would row in the bottom of a ship, the slaves that would row the boat. They kept the boat moving, but they were the ones that were like, they, it wasn't a glorious role. It was an enslaved role. But as they pushed that boat forward, it got it where it needed to go. And he's saying, look, there's people before me. And they had these accounts, they experienced the truth, and man, they've kept this thing going. I'm just going to take it all, and I'm going to compile it, and I'm going to put it together and make it wrapped up in a way that flows. So does that make sense? That's what we're looking at in Luke 1, and it's crazy because this first four verses, it's written in super high-class Greek, like basically like, like the language of the rich Greek. But then after that, in verse 5, he goes to common man Greek. And I think that's cool because there's scholars out here, right? They go, oh, the Bible. You guys are so simple with your Bible, right? But think about the loftiness of the message of Jesus Christ. Like God putting on flesh, coming to fulfill all this prophecy, die in our place, resurrect. That's not a simple thing. It's lofty. But yet the Lord has made it simple to understand because we're knuckleheads. I'm a knucklehead. Maybe you're not, but I am. And he's made it simple in the sense that I somehow understand that now. And that's the gospel. It is a lofty thing, but he gives you his spirit. He wants you to enter this relationship and love him and walk in it. And so Luke says, look it, I'm going to flex a little bit and show you, Theophilus, most excellent, that I can speak your language. But it's not about coming up to where you're. You need to come to realization of who Jesus is. And now he just starts this flow. Uh, it's awesome because he literally starts before the birth of Jesus. That's how far, far back he's going to put this story together. So if you have a movie going in your, your head, that's what I like to do with the Bible. Start a movie, right? So we have the introduction. You press play. Here comes the, the, the camera shot. It's coming up. And here's the opening of the movie, right? And so look at verses uh, five through seven here. It says, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, 
a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. And so we start to get the setting of there's real people in a real place in a real time. I think that's key because so many people want to think that these things was maybe made up by men. <laughs> these things are just some fantasy, um, especially when you have Romans and Greeks and they have all their mythological gods and stuff. And what Luke is saying is, here's the timing. It's actually during the reign of Herod, which is 37 to 4 BC. So it's a real time. We have real people, real bloodlines, right? They actually say they're of the 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 division of Abijah and the daughter of, of Aaron, right? With Elizabeth, you have these people in this real place. And I think it's always important as we read this, man, remember these are real people. Because <laughs> I think sometimes we try to read these stories and go, well, like, oh man, these guys are like superheroes, like, like Zacharias, right? Like John the Baptist or Mary. These people are super, they're regular people. And that's what's so cool about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He uses regular people. It doesn't matter how brilliant someone is. It doesn't matter how not brilliant someone is or uneducated someone may be. The Lord will use you and the Lord will, will meet you where you're at. But it's crazy because these two people here, you have Zacharias and you have Elizabeth. It says in here that they walked in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord blameless. That's a big statement because during the time of Herod, it was a dark season. This was a season where the Jews, their hope was starting to wane. They have a, an Edomite king in Herod. He's, a, he's basically like in their mind, a fake Jew, right? Because he's kind of from Esau, right? He's an Edomite and he's been placed there by Rome to rule over the people. And he's the most like insecure king ever. If anyone looks at him the wrong way, he kills them because he wants to rule the throne. And it, I believe it's in Matthew too, where he gives the order. He says, all Jewish, all children, Jew children, two and under, I'm sorry, Jewish boys, two and under will be murdered because he heard that there was a king coming. And this guy was absolutely insecure. He was violent. He was bad news. But yet here are these people, in spite of the chaos of the culture that's around them, the political culture that's around them, what are they doing? They're living blamelessly. I think it's hard sometimes <laughs> to go, well, everyone else acting crazy. Why can't I just act crazy too? <laughs> Maybe it's just me. But I go, the Lord's called me to be a steward of his things. And we have these people that are of the family and the bloodline of Aaron and Abijah and all these things. We're of the bloodline of Jesus now. We don't walk and act like we used to in the flesh because we belong to the line of Jesus. And so for them, even what was crazy, they lived uprightly. But I think it's important to note here that just because they lived uprightly didn't mean that everything was perfect for them. You know, sometimes we have this, this misconception that, man, if I do everything perfect, then life's going to be perfect. There's not going to be struggle. It's not going to be trial. But there's a guy in the Old Testament, right, a guy named Job. He was upright. He lived rightly before the Lord, and he was greatly blessed. But then everything goes wrong for Job. And remember, the I don't know how recently you guys read the book of Job. I read it about six months ago, and I did an in-depth study on it, just going through it. And it gets exhausting because you're reading it. And really, the majority of the book is people giving their reasons why Job is wrong, why he's a sinner, and why he's terrible, and why all this is happening. And they're all wrong. You're really reading this section of men's theories on why bad things are happening to Job. And at the end, it basically, you realize Job never gets told why he went through any of that. I think that's huge. Job didn't have the book of Job to read. He didn't know that the Lord had this encounter where it's, he told Satan, you're allowed to do this and that, but not this, and all these things. There's... But it says at the end of the book that he basically was more blessed and more upright at the end of those trials. There's a dependence on the Lord that comes through trials and suffering. I've had friends and family members that have prayed for children that love the Lord. They love the Lord, but they cannot conceive for whatever reason in that season. And there's this common thing that says, man, I must be guilty of something. I must have done something so gnarly in my BC days, or right now, I'm just missing something. The Lord is like, he's cursed me. 
And it's interesting in this story, in this true account, we're going to see that God's delays are not always God's denials. And I think that's so important. I'll tell you, I wanted to be in Texas like the day I flew out here in July. I was like, I'm not going home. I'm flying Jen and the boys back out here. We got to do it, right? And it's funny. These are little things compared to trying to conceive a child. But there's this idea of you, I just wanted to be here. I just wanted to be out. And the Lord was saying, no, not yet. No, not yet. I wanted to be here in November. The Lord said, no, not yet. And then even the week before we were leaving, you guys know, as I text you all, we got like sicker than dogs, right? Like the day we were supposed to leave and the whole trip's getting delayed, delayed, delayed. And it's like, what is happening? It was funny because we got the Flagstaff uh, three, four days later than we were supposed to. And when we got there, uh, my father-in-law was talking to the person at the hotel that runs the place and said, oh, man, it's a good thing you didn't come in three or four days ago. No one could even drive. Everyone was getting stuck on the road. Everyone was in the snow. Everyone was, And it was like, man, was, praise the Lord. Like, it's funny. It, was, it felt like spiritual attack. Like Satan was trying to stop us from getting here. And I think there was some of that. But then Satan plays himself all the time, right? The Lord goes, you can use that. Go ahead. Watch how I use this to glorify myself. And that delay actually made for a really smooth trip four days later. It would have been a hard trip before that. And so it's just something that came to mind. And I thought, okay, it's a, it's a small thing. It's not a, the same as what they were going through. But it just reminds me that so many times I have my plans. And I go, Lord, this is how you have to work. Well, this is not. I have my plan. You need to get in line with me. And I know there's many of us in the room that have been praying about, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. You got to wait on the Lord. But I'm telling you, again, his delays are not always his denials. And so in this section, they're barren. And you have to remember in that culture, man, it's worse than it is today. I mean, people, even today, people feel sorry for someone that can't conceive. And it's kind of like, man, that, that breaks my heart. In that culture, it was like, man, it breaks my heart because you or someone you, you were related to did something very wrong. There was a guilt complex that came with that. But it didn't stop them from serving the Lord. I think that's key. Serve the Lord. <laughs> no matter what serve the Lord, no matter the political climate, no matter the things that people are telling you, you're cursed or the, the Lord must be mad at you. Trust the Lord, trust his word. And so look at verse eight through, uh, eight through 12 here. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. So you have this really cool scene because Zechariah, right? We talked about he's serving the Lord. This is the hour of incense that's happening here. Basically, there'd be morning and evening sacrifices. We know about these things. There'd be morning and evening um, practices at the temple. Basically, there's so many priests, there's so many sons of Aaron at this point that they've, it was First Chronicles 24, I believe, where David said, hey, we have too many priests. We have to like start breaking them up into sections and give them a rotation. He builds a schedule, like almost like a service schedule so that everyone can have an opportunity to serve the Lord. Well, it so, just so happens that Zechariah, it would seem very coincidental that he happens to be serving this week and it, the lot happens to fall upon him. Basically, they'd cast lots because they didn't have the Holy Spirit necessarily like for every decision because they weren't spirit filled yet. The spirit would come and go at this point. Right. They would cast lots and the Lord would be in that. We don't exactly know how that works because we don't do that anymore. Don't cast lots to figure out your stuff anymore. Pray and seek the Lord. But it was essentially like, OK, Lord, whose turn is it? And what do we do? They cast the lots and it's like, oh, it's Zechariah's turn to go in. This is a big deal for Zechariah. He's a priest. And this is like the, 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 coach, the church cella, if you will, of service. He's like, man, I'm going to go in and I'm going to handle the incense, the altar of incense, this altar that's here that represented like prayer to the Lord. The idea was they would go in, they would, on those burning coals, they'd offer the incense. It would go up like a sweet smelling aroma unto the Lord, right? Well, while he's in there doing that, the people are outside praying. And they're going to be praying for national things, for the Messiah to come. They're praying for all those general things. But in this case, here he is. He gets called to go in. And you got to think a couple of things. He's probably like, man, this is awesome. But it's kind of scary. 
Because I don't know if you've ever read like, I don't know, Leviticus 10, where Nadab and Abihu, right? They go in and offer strange fire. They get zapped, man. They're dead. They're just like fried on the spot. You have people doing things. And if you weren't ceremonially clean and if you didn't go through the procedures you were supposed to go through, it'd be a scary thing to encounter the Lord. But you do it rightly, what a blessing, right? It's service unto the Lord for us as well. When we do it with the right heart, it's a total blessing. We do it wrong, man. It's just going to create chaos. But Exodus 30, verse 10, the Lord actually calls the altar of incense most holy to the Lord. And I think it's cool because it represented prayer. I don't know how about you guys, but sometimes I feel like it's more important to read the word or it's more important to go do this or go do that or do some worship. Prayer is so essential. The Lord wants us to be praying. It's the communication that we have with him. And so I think it's huge. He says, it's holy to me. I want you to be there. I want you to, to do this day in and day out. And it's just a reminder to me. I'm not good. I'll be honest. That's my weakest thing in my walk is my prayer life. I pray, but I don't feel like I pray as much as I do all the other things. And so it's cool. I never want to get complacent in my walk. There's always something new to grow in. There's always something to get better at as the Lord leads and as the Lord convicts and whatnot. But it's crazy because when he goes in here, the people, remember, they haven't heard from the Lord for 400 years. We have to remember the context, right? Malachi is the last time that the Lord has spoken. There's been 400 years of silence. Zechariah in his mind is like, cool, I'm going to go in and this is a blessing. I'm going to offer some incense. But in his mind, I think he's thinking this is going to be the, the, like the mundane. There's a very structured way we do this. I'm just going to go about my business. A plus B equals C. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to come out. And then this is how it's going to go. And I expect nothing different. And this is what's so cool about the Lord. A, he uses normal people. <laughs> B, there's no coincidences. We're going to see Zechariah was supposed to be the guy that's supposed to be in there at this very moment. And see, even when we don't expect it. Zechariah didn't do anything special that morning that made him more holy than everyone else I don't, that we have note of. He always walked in a way that was holy, but he didn't go and run some holy marathon that day to where the Lord's like, now, you, now I'm going to use you for something. See, he just went in and it's so cool because we can go do the small things. Like we're setting up church last night and I'm like, this is kind of funny, right? Like I'm putting 12 chairs out. I'm like, how are we going to fill 12 chairs? And I'm, you know, at, our, at Pomona Valley, it's like, dude, are we going to have enough seating today? We got to roll the door up. We're putting chairs outside. We got all this stuff. There's a level where it's like, man, this is kind of little. It's kind of mundane in the flesh. But then the Lord reminds you, this is where I work. I work. I'm the God of the little things. I'm the God of the great things because I work in those little things. They add up. They comprise the great thing. I believe it's the book of Zechariah. This is not to despise the day of small things, right? The day of those little things. Because again, it's what you do day by day that's going to create that legacy. That's going to create that life that glorifies God. And so he goes in here thinking it's going to be a regular day, right? But look at 13 through 17. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So again, here he is. He's going into the temple, right? And as verse 11 told us, there's an angel of the Lord that appears at the right side of the altar. So he goes in thinking, do this normal thing. <laughs> and usually what happened, he'd put the incense on there and then he the priest would pray. You can imagine as he's praying, he goes to open his eyes and they're standing next to the altar now as an angel. And one of two things has to go through his mind in, in my, in my um, thinking. Either A, I've done something very wrong and I'm going to die right now because that happens sometimes, right? Or we as a people have done something wrong because angels often bring a message of judgment. He's like, maybe I'm upright, but everyone out there is about to die, man. The Passover, right? was pronounced, hey, I'm going to send an angel to kill everyone. You think about Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah. Hey, angels are coming to kill everyone, right? And then you have uh, the golden calf incident and angels coming to get everyone, right? Like 
scary things. The census with David in Chronicles, an angel is going to come and bring out. So here's Zechariah clearly knows the word of God is like, well, this might not be a good thing. And we know that because he's, he's terrified. That's normal. When you see an angel, you're going to be terrified. They, this isn't like a baby with a harp, right? This is like, this is a, this is a, a gnarly, this is Gabriel we find out here, right? He's standing before the Lord. It's awesome. And so he's there and he says, hey, don't be afraid. It's funny, right? It's like, no, I'm, I'm going to be afraid, dude. Like I, there's that meme. I think it's like, this is literally the scariest moment of my life, right? Standing before an angel. What do you mean? Don't be afraid. And in this case, he says, look at, this is why you shouldn't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. And see what he's saying is, don't be afraid because God hears you. There's, there's reverent fear of the Lord, but you don't have to have this phobic fear of the Lord where you're worried the Lord's going to kill you because you messed up or because you've been impatient or because you've been doubting him. He says, I'm going to prove to you you shouldn't be scared because the Lord heard your prayer. That means he loves you. That means he cares for you. Like perfect love casts out fear, right? And so he says, look, don't be afraid. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to have a son. You shall call his name John. John literally means it's favor of Jehovah. And so he's telling him, don't be afraid. You're going to have a son. And he's going to be the favor of the Lord. And the John that he's speaking of here is not John the disciple. It's John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, Jesus talked about him in Matthew eleven eleven. He said, assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. And so I just think it's so cool. You, you have Jesus talking about in the future, right? <laughs> John the Baptist is like just the greatest man ever. But here's the angel coming and saying, hey, you got to trust the Lord because you're going to have a son and you don't even understand how awesome this is going to be. And to me, it goes, this all had to happen in the perfect timing, right? Because who are we talking about here? He says, this man's going to go out. He's going to go out in like the spirit of Elijah. He's saying this man that you're this child that you're going to have has become the man that is the forerunner to the Messiah. Had you tried to have your baby when you were young, because remember, they're well advanced in years. It wouldn't have been this guy. It couldn't have been this guy. You were so worked up trying to pray day in and day out in your youth. We need to have a child now, Lord. We need to have a child. We're doing everything right. The Lord says, oh, I'm hearing you. You have no idea how well I'm going to bless you. I'm just not doing it yet. My delays are not always denials. But I'm not. it's not time yet. And it's crazy because when the priests would go into this place, they're not going in there praying for like their day to be good and for their sons and their wives and things. They're going in there praying for the nation. They're going in there to pray for the, the, the priesthood. It would almost seem selfish to go in and pray for your own things in there. This is about, again, you're on your like best behavior in the temple. You're going to do the, the, the routine things. And I love it because the Lord says, I'm going to break that routine. I'm here to answer you personally right now. You thought this was about everyone else, but it's actually, I want to deal with you. I want to speak with you, Zacharias. And that's the cool thing when we serve the Lord. We serve the Lord for everyone else. We serve it, serve him in, in, in essence, we serve everyone else so that we glorify God. But in that, the Lord meets us where we're at. And what he tells him is you get this description of, of John the Baptist. He says he's not going to be drinking wine nor strong drink. So basically it's like a Nazarite vow, right? But there's also this element where, man, he's not going to be taking anything lightly. We know about John the Baptist, right? We're going to see him in a couple of chapters. He was a wild man. He was awesome. I love John the Baptist, right? Because the fact that Jesus says that guy right there is the best ever. Think about the ministry of John the Baptist. What miracle did he ever perform? There's not a single one. What did he do? He just went out looking crazy, but telling everyone Jesus is coming, man. Jesus is coming. You need to prepare. That's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. In today's culture, in today's church, I don't think John the Baptist gets a job, first of all. But secondly, I think most people go, that's passe, dude. We don't need just the Bible anymore. We don't need just prepare for Jesus. We have all these issues at hand we got to fix. Think of all the people that would have told John the Baptist, what are you doing in the desert? There's like Herod. There's Rome. There's all these things. John says, no, my eyes are on the Lord and my mission is just to tell people that Jesus is coming. And Jesus says, that makes the best man ever right there. That's my desire is like, Cool. Mir miracles are great. <laughs> but man, it's about just preaching the word of God. I think that's the thing that Jesus always honors. And it says, and I believe it's Psalm 138 too, that says the Lord honors his word above all his name. Why would I want to go indirect to anything else? Just use the word of God. 
do the things he's called you to do. And so there's this idea that he's just about it. He's not going to waste his time sitting around drinking or doing whatever. There's a Nazarite vow to it. He'd be pure. He'd be sanctified. Um, and I love this idea that he's filled the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. This section of scripture, I'm not going to go on a soapbox because we only got so much time before it gets icy outside. You got to hit the road, right? But anyone that wants to say the Lord has no plans for a child in the womb, this whole chapter is about I'm working from the womb. I'm working before you even conceive. I got news for you. I got plans for those children in the womb. And I don't even think it's a political issue to talk about such things. This is, like, God forbid we have to defend why we want people to be born and live. That's a scary culture we live in. But we know the truth. When we, In our BC days, it was maybe we participated even in such things like abortion or the, the furtherance thereof. But we know now, and there's forgiveness and grace for those things in the past. But now we know, man, the Lord has great plans. We want to pray over our kids too. This is the other thing. You pray for children with great expectations. Like I never would have thought that that could be like a thing until I read this section. Like the Lord just fills children with his spirit, like from, in, from the womb. I thought you had to come to this age of knowledge. I thought you had to be this thing. Like the pray great things over kids. Pray great things over the next generation. Even not your children, pray for great things for revival. Pray for the Lord to begin to reveal himself to young children now. Because, man, it's going to be exciting. It's going to change the course. And John the Baptist from the womb, he'd grow up to be that man that would be the forerunner to Jesus because he's filled with the Spirit from the get-go. But I think it's important Zechariah and Elizabeth are told this so that they could train up their child in the ways of the Lord. You know, they're not just rest, like, all right, cool, Lord, you're going to do all the work, right? Like, no, you got to raise your kid in the way, though. I'm telling you this, that you raised John the Baptist to appreciate and walk in these things. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it's wild. The last thing I want to note on that section is at the last two verses, it's Malachi 4, 5, and 6 that's being quoted. I think this is huge because that's the last time the Lord spoke to his people. And now he says, hey, it's been 400 years, Zechariah. You're in here to do your routine stuff. Guess what? I'm talking again. And I'm, I'm starting right where I left off. I, it's, it's a comma. You thought I would put a period at the end of Malachi. It was a comma. There's so much great stuff that's going to happen here. And so he picks up right where he left off and basically says what your, what your child is going to do is going to go in that spirit of and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Israel was walking in chaos at that point. They were worshiping Sabbath. They were worshiping man-made law. They were under Rome. They were worshiping all kinds of things. He says, man, he's going to go out in the spirit of Elijah the way Elijah went to King Ahab and called him out and said, dude, you're messing up. That's why the drought's coming. He says he's going to go out and he's going to tell the people that are here walking disobedience, they need to go back. They need to raise their children again in the right way. They need to get ready for the Messiah to come. And so it's awesome. that I, I mean, this is good news for everyone, right? It's not just good news for, for Zacharias and Elizabeth that they're getting a son. It's good news for the nation. Because remember, everyone outside is praying like, Lord, send your Messiah to save us. This is saying, hey, if I'm sending the forerunner, guess who comes next? The Messiah. This is a good message of hope. Don't be afraid. You've been walking faithfully. I'm going to bless that. And I'm, I see the people, I hear their cries. But look at verse 18, 18 through 20. It says, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. That's a slick line right there. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. So here's Zechariah. He hears all this stuff. He's like, this is wild. I really just came in here to light some incense. Can I leave maybe? I don't know. I, this is crazy. He says, how am I supposed to know this? And that statement in the original language, this is a doubtful statement. Like, how am I supposed to believe this? I'm an old man. <laughs> My wife's an old lady. <laughs> I like how he puts it though. Again, Valentine's. This guy's slick. He's a romantic. He's like, my wife's well advanced in years, right? It's the nice way of saying, my wife's really old, dude. Like, this isn't going to happen, right? And so I love it. He's like, how am I supposed to know? I just love how Gabriel says, I'm Gabriel. What do you, you know what my name means? My name means might of God. And I just came from the presence of God. What? You're a priest, dude. What's wrong with you? Like, I feel like that's what Gabriel could say to this guy. 
But again, the Lord uses regular people. Let me tell you a little secret about guys in ministry. <laughs> Doesn't make us superheroes. <laughs> I believe that most guys in ministry are in ministry because if they weren't in ministry, they'd get in too much trouble. They, they're, they're too fearful. They doubt. But the Lord teaches them in ministry to rely upon him. And their faith grows. I've met lay people in the church that absolutely have more faith than I do. But it's so cool. The Lord says, look it. I'm meeting everyone where they're at. I don't care about your title. I don't care about your situation. I'm just going to deal with you right now. And Zechariah says, hey, look, I don't believe this, essentially. Like, this is too, this is too crazy. For, that's, that's, that's what I imagine saying. Like, I don't think this is going to work, Gabriel. I think you forgot who you're talking to. Maybe you have the wrong guy. I don't know. Maybe the lots fell on the wrong person. And he goes, listen, just so you know that this is true, you're not going to be able to talk for the next nine months. <laughs> Consequence for disbelief. Again, it doesn't say, because you didn't believe, I'm taking this away. I think this is huge. I think sometimes as believers, we think, well, if I'm disobedient, the Lord's going to take away everything good. The Lord's like merciful. He's long-suffering. He's long-suffering towards us, right? He's not slack concerning his promises that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But in this case, he says, look at what I'm going to do, your consequences, you're just going to go mute, man. And that's going to be a sign that something big happened in here. And so there's a consequence for disbelief for Zechariah. And when he comes out, look at verse, uh, verse 21. And the people waited for Zechariah and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came, when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. And so he's inside. He's having this encounter with the Lord through Gabriel, right? And Gabriel's like, look it, since you don't believe, this is why I'm going to give it. It's two things. It's almost like the Lord knew. The Lord says, I know you're not going to believe. So, but you should have believed. There's going to be some consequence for you, for you not believing. And it's going to be that you're mute for the next nine months. But I'm going to be glorified through that muteness. Because when you go out, Hey, you've been in here a long time now. So I don't know. It's funny because you read that in like 20 seconds. I think there's more of the conversation. This is the gist of the conversation, but there's a whole process here. It's getting long enough to where it says that the people were marveling. They're getting worried. They're like, hey, someone may want to pull that rope that's tied to his leg to see if he's dead in there or not, right? Because they would tie a rope and bells around the priest going in, usually just to the Holy of Holies. But in this case, they know that people can get struck down in there. They're starting to think someone, he might be dead. <laughs> And then he comes out and they're like, okay, cool. What he's going to do then, he's going to come out and they're going to do their routine thing. They would come out and it was actually uh, Numbers 6, 24 to 26. They would actually come out and they'd, they'd proclaim this blessing. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be glorious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That was usually what happened at the end of every offering of, of at the altar of incense. It's a sweet blessing. It's a true blessing. But I think it's one of those things, like you can sing the same worship song over and over and it loses its meaning. But if you read those words, it says the Lord is going to keep you. His face is going to shine upon you. He's going to be gracious to you. For 400 years, it's felt like the Lord hasn't been really there with them. In some form, it kind of felt like that. Not to everyone, but as a majority. He comes out and they're expecting, okay, do your little thing where you say the Lord likes us and everything, right? He comes out and he's, you know, he's, he's trying to charade to them what his experience, what his experience was. They're like, this is weird, right? This is different. Like either you don't know what you're supposed to do right now or something great has happened in there. And it says that they perceived that he had a vision. I think that's interesting. I don't think he got the details out to them in that moment of this is what's happening, that it's John the Baptist and he's going to be the forerunner. I think it's just a matter of dude, like the Lord has manifested himself and everyone's like, this is crazy right? So it brought excitement and hope to people. Even though they didn't understand all the details, they could see through the life of Zechariah that the Lord was moving. Even in his muteness, I think that's convicting to me. <laughs> I think I have the ability to speak. What, am, what are people picking up from my life? Are they picking up me and my family are my first priority or is it the Lord is my first priority? Are they picking up a venture to Texas because I hate California or are they picking up going to Texas because the Lord has called me? There's many different things. You can be doing it, but are they hearing the true message, message of the Lord? Just a little side note here. I don't know. That's just kind of what I pick up on. It's like, man, I have the opportunity to speak. I need to speak and make it clear what the Lord is doing in my life. 
And so it says when the, the when the time of his service was done, he he went back to his house. So it's like, man, I'm going to finish the thing that's at hand. And then I'm going to go home. And so he goes home. Look at verse 24, 25. It says, now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself <laughs> five months saying, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And so this is, we're not going to get crude or anything, but let me just be clear on this. You got two very old people and you got, you got this man, Zechariah going home now. He's got to venture home. He's probably thinking, okay, maybe that was like something I ate that made that whole experience. Maybe there was something weird that happened there. This can't possibly be true. And I'm mute right now. So maybe it is true, but I'm kind of mad at the Lord because I can't even talk right now. So there's so many emotions that he may be battling, but here's the important thing. He obeyed the command of the Lord. He went and said, I know that the Lord, remember, this isn't Mary. This isn't a miraculous conception. It was, you guys will, that womb that was barren will no longer be barren. You have to go participate though. You have to walk in this. And there's something very simple in this. The Lord partners with us in some way. He tells us, hey, I have a great thing that I'm going to do through you. But what's the first thing we have to do? We have to take the step. Like, this is a ridiculous thing to think about. I'm not saying, like, just to think that we're going to have a child. I'm not talking about just the way to have a child, but like, oh, we're going to do this with the planning of like having a child. They're very, very old at this point. And he says, I'm going to believe the word of the Lord. I'm going to go and start taking the steps to see if this is the Lord. And guess what happens? It's the Lord. And Elizabeth is like, Lord, you're awesome. You've taken away that reproach that's been upon me. And how did that reproach get, get taken away? The grace of the Lord, the miraculous involvement of the Lord in their life, but their obedience. They participated. I could say all day long that I want to go do this thing for the Lord or that thing for the Lord. But until I kind of get off my hands and go step out into it, I mean, what's the Lord going to do? We're, we're not as robots. We choose in our free will to go step into those things. But when we do, man, Get ready for just an awesome adventure because the Lord's going to do just great, awesome things. He's going to create a legacy that you never could have done on your own. And if it was up to Zacharias and Elizabeth, they're like, well, we're never going to have children. That's just it. But instead, the Lord says, I'm going to get involved. You're going to have the greatest man that ever lived outside of Jesus Christ himself, according to the mouth of Jesus. I think that's awesome, right? And to me, I go, how many times will the Lord's, the unbelief that I have will bring some kind of consequence maybe? whatever that thing may be. And I get all sulky and bitter over the consequence. But instead the Lord's saying, okay, good. You have a, con- whatever. Use that thing to remember that you should just trust me. Now go obey. That's the thing that messes people up. We get bitter and we walk away instead of getting bitter and repenting and then obeying. That's the difference between someone that stays walking the Lord versus someone that gets choked out, right? You think about the parable of the sower. It's like you get choked out because the cares of the world. You start to look at your situation. You put your eyes on yourself and your circumstance. You take them off the Lord and you panic and run. In this case, he says, all right, I messed up in the temple by not believing, but today I'm going to recommit to believing. And so does that make sense where we're at on this? I hope this is flowing in a way to where you're like, man, this is, this is great because it still hits us in 2021, right? This is the cool thing about the gospel. It hasn't been updated. There's no new addition of this thing. I know we have translations, but we don't change the stuff in here. If it's a good translation, we don't change the things that are in here. It's still the revelation of God. And he deals with every one of us. It's a personal relationship. And I think we've all been here, right? In one way or another, but just real quickly, I just want to look at the next. It's kind of cool. Cause there's a contrast that happens in this chapter. As I said, we had the priest Zacharias, right? He had this announcement of hope that was given to him and he kind of failed to believe it initially. But now we're going to have an announcement of salvation. Look at verse, um, verse 26 through 29. It says, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee called, uh, named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. So we get a little like change in the story, right? So we get the end of Zechariah and, and Elizabeth. 
And then if we're watching the movie, it says six months later, right? So we had Elizabeth go off for five months, which by the way, you might say, well, why did she go off for five months? I've heard this thing that people are like, well, she had to like, you know, really hide the pregnancy. You don't look pregnant though for the first five months. It would be the last half that you would hide yourself. I believe she went to seek the Lord on like, this is a crazy thing. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this whole thing? Like I'm going to go seek the Lord and get right and focus on the Lord. So while she's off doing that, preparing for the things that are going to happen in her life, Gabriel comes over now six months later in the sixth month of Elizabeth's preg pregnancy, shows up to this city called Nazareth. This is the first time we get Nazareth mentioned by name in anywhere in the Bible. So now there, Nazareth is not an important place. It's not a fancy place by any means. If you remember the disciples that say, does anything good come out of there? Right? Like what? Watts? Compton? Sorry. Watson Compton? Sorry. Um, but it's one of those things where I don't know who's online, but you have people that think, man, the Lord only works in like certain people groups. He only works with certain classes. He only works certain places. The Lord Jesus is phenomenal understatement of the year, but he's so wonderful and awesome because he says, I'm going to relate to every person that's ever lived in any way. I'm not going to be born to a rich family. I'm not going to come. He could choose anywhere. He's I'm going to come and I'm going to come to Nazareth, this little humble, small place to a poor working class family. And I'm going to show that there's no reason to not follow and be obedient to the Lord just because you're poor and down and out in those things. Does that make sense? I think that's huge because I think sometimes we make excuses of why it's hard for us to follow the Lord. And the Lord's like literally Hebrews 4.15, right? We have a high priest who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses. He was tempted in all points, just as we are, but without sin. He lived the real life and he experienced everything that we would encounter. And he overcame that through the power of the spirit, right? So in this case, we have this here, Mary's there, um, it says that she was a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And that's important because if you remember Isaiah, uh, I believe it's Isaiah 7, 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, right? God with us. She's going to be told your son is going to be the son of God. It's God, the son. He's going to be with, with the people now. He's coming and you're a betrothed virgin. This is big because in Isaiah, they use a, a word that's different than where virgin is used in a lot of other places. And it literally means to be essentially married, but still a virgin. And see, to be betrothed in that era, you couldn't just leave the betrothal period just like, oh, never mind, I changed my mind. You'd have to get a divorce. So it was possible if you were betrothed to someone and like if a woman's betrothed to a man and he dies, she could be a virgin widow. That's weird. We don't understand that in our culture, right? You don't have a virgin widow. If you're married, you're no longer probably a virgin, right? So in this case, Mary, you here meet the requirements that were given in Isaiah 7, 14. And the time has begun. The forerunner is about to be born. I'm coming to you. And here's the deal. What did Mary do to actually receive any of this? What did she do? She is just like Zechariah. She was faithful she served the Lord, but we don't have any record of her doing something special compared to any other woman of the Lord. I believe she met certain requirements, and it's awesome. In this section, we're going to see Mary is a phenomenal example of a humble servant of the Lord. But it's the grace of God. It was unmerited, given, and received grace that allowed her to become the mother of Jesus, the Son of God, right? So we can have side conversations if there's anything that comes up about that. I know that's a weird thing if you've grown up Roman Catholic or if you have had different ideas. Of, there's people that even argue at this point in the Christian realm. I don't, they use that term loosely, but they say they don't believe in the virgin birth anymore. They say, oh, that's just like, that's not real literal. There's a lot of things that come with this section. We can talk about those another time, but um, for the sake of time, we just know this. Mary's blessed among women because the Lord poured out grace upon her. We're blessed among mankind because the Lord's poured out grace upon us. She's a faithful servant of the Lord. We can choose to be faithful servants of the Lord as well. Amen. Amen. And so look what it says here. I love it again in 29 where she says, uh, it says that she was troubled. The word there is agitated. She was bothered in heart and mind at the manner of greeting. When the angel comes and says, blessed are you among women? She's like, hey, are you talking to someone behind me? <laughs> like me? From Nazareth, I'm like this special thing. I don't think so, right? Like there's this, I don't understand how this even works right now. That's kind of what she's dealing with right here.
But look at verse 30 through 33. It says, then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is insane, right? You have Zacharias getting this thing of, hey, you're going to have a son that's going to go out in the spirit of Elijah. He's going to be the forerunner that completes Malachi, right? That's a big statement. That's a really awesome thing. Mary here, let's remember, Mary is approximately, we know she's a teenager, somewhere between like probably 15 to 20. Different culture, remember, she's betrothed to a man that's like 28, but it's a different, different era. But she's young, and she's just she's this young lady, and she's given this statement. I just love the humility in it. I mean, to be a humble young person, <laughs> I know I wasn't a very humble young person. I struggle, I struggle being a humble old person, right? Older guy, but being young and humble, that's a hard thing. I think that immediately shows her heart belonged to the Lord, right? Like Blessed are the poor in spirit, for for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Like, here's this just humble lady who loves the Lord. Because again, let's be let's be clear. I don't think the Lord's gonna pick someone that does not align with what it's gonna take to raise Jesus, right? I think that's huge. The Lord said, here are the requirements: betrothed virgin, loves the Lord, willing to do this thing. Let's see what happens. And so the message is given from Gabriel to her. And it's just, it's insane. He says, don't be afraid. You found favor with God. It's the same idea we talked about earlier, right? Like when we understand who the Lord is, we don't fear him in a way where we're scared he's going to strike us with lightning. We fear him with reverence. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, right? We love the Lord and we fear him in a way that's upright. But he says, you don't have to worry. You have great favor. And I think about Ephesians 1.3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's what changed our attitude towards, towards the Lord, right? I don't know about you guys, but when I was in the world, I didn't want to encounter the Lord. All I want now, every day, is to encounter the Lord. That changes when you know who the Lord is and how he loves you, and you desire to know him well, and it's just awesome. There's a list here that's given of all the things, and just quickly going through it. It says that his name is going to be Jesus. We know that Jesus literally means the Lord is salvation. So like the idea is like, man, the Lord's coming, Emmanuel, right? The Lord will be with you. He is your salvation. He's going to save. And again, the forerunner is going to go out and say that the Lord is coming. Be prepared. And he's going to save, take away the sins of the world. This is all coming together to create. That's what Luke's trying to do. Paint the picture for when Jesus starts his ministry. And he says a few things that... You know, if you're familiar with scripture, it's wonderful. It just says that he's going to be the son of the most high, uh, of the highest. So in other words, he's going to be the carbon copy of God himself. God incarnate is what that title is saying. He's going to be God, man and God. And it says that he's going to have the throne of David. That fulfills 2 Samuel 7, 16, right? The idea that you're going to have a throne and a kingdom forever, David. It comes through Jesus, the Messiah. And it says that he's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom, there will be no end. If anyone ever tries to tell you that, well, Jesus is just going to reign during the millennium, there's certain cults and groups that say things like this. Then he turns it back over to the father. That's not what this, this says here. His reign has no end. It's eternal. When we worship King Jesus, it's because King Jesus came forever. He's always been king. He will always be king. He's Lord of Lords. It says in Revelation 20, 1 through 6, when he comes back, or actually Revelation 19, he comes back and he has Lord of Lord, King of Kings on his thigh, right? And then in 20, he establishes his millennial kingdom. And in that millennial kingdom, that's what this is talking about. Then beyond that, he's going to rule and reign forever in eternity. And man, Mary, think about Mary right now. Mary's being told, this is what your baby's going to be. <laughs> You're like, dude, I don't know. Like we, we hit baseballs to find out if it's a boy or a girl, right? Like, oh, it's a boy. This is great. Your child's going to be the son of God. What? Like, this is crazy. Right? Like this is a wild thing. I don't know what that looks like. What you put, what kind of confetti you put in a ball to find out that your son, I don't know. But look at verse 34. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? It sounds like a similar question that Zechariah asked to Gabriel in English, very different in the original language. 
This expresses, hey, I'm in. How are we going to do this? That's wild. Zechariah the man that was supposed to be the priest leading the people, representing the people. is like, oh, no, this is crazy. I don't believe that the Lord can do all these things. Mary's like, hey, I'm in. <laughs> how are we going to do this? That's wild to me. Honestly, for what it's for what it's worth, worry, don't worry, almost done. I think it's interesting. Calvary Chapel, non-nominational Christians, we play down Mary a lot, right? Because there's been other groups that hype Mary to be God, right? That's not correct either. What we want to do is make sure we understand, man, Mary is a phenomenal example of someone who received the grace of God and then obeyed the commands of the Lord. And she was blessed for it. I think all of us could say that's what we want our life to be right? That we accept the will of God on our life, that we commit to walking in it and just watch how the Lord does great things through it. Not for our sake, but for the kingdom's sake. She says, I'm in. This is going to bring the Messiah. This is going to bring the son of God. I don't even understand it all, but I'm in. How do we do this? And I love it. Gabriel just gives really simple instruction, seemingly simple to him. They sound crazy to us, but look at 35. It says, and the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. This is just the best. Because here's Gabriel. The first one, you know, Zechariah is like, how should I know? She's like, well, I'm Gabriel. Like, I'm just standing with the Lord. I'm telling you, like, God is mighty. She says, well, how are we going to do this? And he gives this wild, I mean, remember, we read this with spoilers, right? We know how this works already. We knew Mary was going to be told this because we live in America. We've seen the story and everything, right? I think Charlie Brown talks about this story, right? <laughs> like this is common, right? But really read this for the first time. Imagine you don't know what's going to be said. And he says, look at the Shekinah glory of the Lord is just going to engulf you. And you're going to conceive and have the son of God. What? Like, this is wild. This is crazy. And I love it because he says, look it, I know it sounds impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. And it's cool because we can say things like, hey, everything is possible for the Lord, right? But sometimes we start to doubt. I love how the Lord uses other believers. He says, hey, I know this sounds crazy. You talk, go talk to your cousin, Elizabeth, Mary. She's like really super old. And she's really super pregnant. <laughs> you should go talk to her and talk about the great things the Lord is doing in her. And it's cool because I believe we all have this in our lives. I have a, a friend. He's become a friend through Instagram. He's a pastor that just started planting Chris Wimberly. He's past, pastoring a church in the Austin area in Texas. He left like eight months before me. And I was watching his whole thing to like, all right, here we go. We don't know what we're doing. We're going to set up chairs in our living room. We're going to do this thing. And the Lord just been blessing it. And it's funny, I didn't know him before he did it, but we've become friends through watching what the Lord's doing in his life. And we've been communicating and stuff and just supporting each other, encouraging each other. And I believe the Lord put him for many other reasons, but for my sake, it's so that I could see and go, man, the Lord's already doing something six months ahead of me in that guy. And he's just faithfully obeying the call on his life. Mary's like, how am I supposed to do this? It's like, hey, I know you feel like you're alone in this. Go talk to Elizabeth. You're not alone in this. The Lord's doing something great in her too. And he says, just remember, it might seem impossible. It's not impossible. Consider the lives of those that have trusted in the Lord and watch the great things that have come out of those things. Amen. Amen. And so look at the last verse, 36, or, I'm sorry, 38. It says, then Mary said, behold, the maid servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is Mary saying, I'm in. You have my permission. <laughs> I think that's huge. She, this isn't a robot situation where the Lord says, oh, I've already decided I'm doing this no matter what. I'm a firm believer. I know Pastor Xavier used to always talk about this. Like if you don't do it, someone else will. The Lord will use somebody. But what a blessing to be that somebody that gets to be used for the Lord. If the Lord gives you a calling on your life, man, seek him. Make sure it's him and not your own desires or anything else. But when you knock on those doors and they continue to open, continue to step through them and say, Lord, I'm just, I'm in. I don't even know what this looks like. I don't know how this is going to work, but I believe that with you, the impossible becomes possible and not for my glory, but for yours. I think this is the message of this chapter. We have Luke proclaiming truth to Theophilus, 
We have Gabriel proclaiming hope to Zacharias, and we have Gabriel proclaiming salvation to Mary. Truth, hope, and salvation. This is the gospel message. This whole book is going to be about, that's only found in Jesus, though. If you leave Jesus, the hope goes away because you're not based on the truth, the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus Christ, and you will not have salvation. But when you believe the truth, you will have hope and you will see salvation. This whole chapter, the half of it, comes together just to show us, trust the Lord. When we're doubting what he's doing and things are hard and we're enduring storms and we're going through all these different things, you go, Lord, what are you doing? His delays are not always his denials. And trust the Lord. Seek him in everything that you're doing. I'm telling you, your life, as you choose to honor the Lord in the little things, he'll be glorified in great things. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for your mercy, for your grace, and for your love, Lord. And Father, I just, I just thank you for my friends that are here in person. I thank you for my friends that are online, Lord. I thank you for just their willingness to hear your word, Lord. And I pray that anything that is of me would fall to the ground, but everything of you, Lord. Father, that it would take root in our hearts today, Lord, that you would speak mightily, that we would seek you, walk with you, Trust you, Lord, knowing that truth, hope, and salvation are only found in you, Lord Jesus. And just as we're praying, I feel like I know everyone in the room here, but there are people online. And just if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved and to turn from your sins. If God's convicted you of your sin, you see yourself as a sinner in need of repentance. That's miraculous. It's a good thing. Because Jesus died for you and rose from the dead and is able to forgive you. So if you desire to be born again today, you can repeat this prayer right where you you sit at home. I'm assuming everyone in here, but right where we sit, you just pray this after me. You say, Father, I come to you. I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins, to give me a brand new heart, fill me with your spirit, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.